Good morning, church. It is uh, really good to be with you today and just to greet each other and, and sing together and celebrate uh, the gospel and what Christ has done for us. We've done that already in confession and hearing of, of his love. Uh, if you're new to Cornerstone, I often uh, share uh, stories and, and bear sightings. I spend a lot of time on my mountain bike. So I was out there last night, right before dark, uh, riding on the trails. I didn't see a bear, um, didn't see, see much. I think, uh, you know, they're, I, I don't know where they are, but I haven't been seeing a whole, whole lot of wildlife. But I come across this couple, and this couple, they're hiking up toward Lake Clementine, and I'm going around on my bike, and they've got their phone out, and they're just like, you know, looking down at something, and I, you know, I said, is it a snake? You know, what are they, you know, I'm just kind of excited to see what they're all excited about. I get up to them, and uh, it was a lizard. So I, I don't know if they'd never been outside before, had never seen a lizard, um, but, you know, I, I kind of was processing that event, and I'm sharing it with you now. You know, God's creation is, is incredible, and Someone like me doesn't really see his glory or his creation in a, in a lizard. I see it in a bear or a bird of prey or something, but some people have eyes to see beauty and, and to take a picture of a lizard. God created this universe and, and even lizards and, and so on. I mean, I'm not going to stop and start telling you about lizards when I see them, all right? Can't get an amen on that. I'm not going to tell you. But there is something to that story, and all of that has nothing to do with my sermon. So here we go. Let's uh, hopefully you have your Bibles open or you have that sheet in front of you. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we, we preach through the, the Bible, through different books of the Bible, and ask God to speak to us through that passage. So you'll be able to track with me if you're in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we'll work our way through this text today. Uh, again, if you need some refreshment or you're visiting with us today, we're at a point in 1 Samuel, in Israel's history, where never before have they been at such a low point as where we are in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. It is a low point. Their leadership, the priests, have been judged by God. They've been killed by God, Hophni and Phinehas, it was prophesied, and they both died on the same day. That happened a couple weeks ago in the text as we've been going through it. There was a battle with the Philistines. 30,000 foot soldiers died. Imagine the grief of those family members and everyone, 30,000 Israelites dead. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is supposed to be near the tabernacle in Shiloh, near where the, the sacrifices and the worship of God's community would happen, that Ark of the Covenant was, was moved to the battlefield. It was captured by the Philistines. I mean, we're at a point where if you didn't know the end of the story, the history of God's people, you might think this would be the end. The leadership's gone, 30,000 dead, the Ark of the Covenant gone. I mean, there, there's not a lot of bright spots. There are a few. If we go back a few chapters, but it is very dark. Now, we know the end of the story that God doesn't give up on his people Israel. He never gives up on his people. There's going to be a king coming, a monarchy set up. There's going to be a great King David, and that king points to another king, a Messiah who's going to come, the King of Kings, Jesus, the Savior of the entire world. 
So God is by no means done with his people, but this is a dark, dark time. And in this dark time, in this passage, there is truth for us to discover. And it is relevant to our lives, even a, a, a passage like this in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So let's dig into it, and we're going to find uh, some truth about superstition and about other things for us. I'm in 1 Samuel 5. Let's look, begin looking at verses 1 and 2. It says, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, uh, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. So the enemy, the Philistines, they, they, they've captured this ark. And if you might think like I think, you might think, well, why didn't you burn the thing or destroy the thing or, or have a celebration and, and get rid of it? But they were not thinking the way I'm thinking, or if you would think that way. And part of that is because the Philistines were polytheists. They believed in all kinds of gods. So I think part of the reason that they bring this to their god Dagon, they had many gods, and put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, is they want whatever, whatever sort of goodies the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh, whatever he can deliver, we want those too. So let, let's put him in here, um, the Ark that symbolizes the God of Israel, let's put that Ark in there next to Dagon's temple. So this is in uh, Ashdod, one of the cities. Uh, there's five great cities from this Philistine empire. And I forgot my little uh, pointer there, but maybe you can read Ashdod. It's near the coast, about halfway down. And they've moved this about 20 or 30 miles from the Ark of the Covenant from Ebenezer, where this battle took place, which is kind of near the northmost part of this map, right near the coast. So they've moved this Ark quite a, a few miles, and they've put it in their temple to one of their many gods, these polytheistic people, the, Phil the Philistines, Dagon. So let's see what happens. We've just read it, and if you have a good memory, you know what happens. But let's uh, pretend like you don't know what happens, and let's, um, let's look at what happens here as they put it in uh, this temple in verses 3 through 5. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, uh, there was Dagon, the, the, the image of this false god. Uh, we know, the readers of Scripture, it's a false god, and he has fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Let me just pause here for a moment. So this is intended to be a message from God that you don't mess with me, you don't use my ark to get goodies or to put me along the pantheon of all of the other gods that you worship. He's showing his supremacy and his dominance by having this idol, this idol representing this false god Dagon, Dagon fallen on the ground. So what do they do? Back to the text here. They, they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. Verse 4, but the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now things are a little more severe. It says his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. And then verse 5, that is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod 
step on the threshold. So a couple things here that you might not know uh, that just helps you understand what's going on here. What God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is trying to communicate by uh, having these hands and head moved off the idol that represents their god, Dagon. Now, in the ancient Near East, if you had, um, after a battle, this is a little gross here, but this is just background information, severed heads and severed hands would be collected and shown to be victorious. They were like the spoils, like this is, this is who is dominant and this is what we have taken. So after a very gentle reminder that the covenant-keeping God of Israel is not something to be messed with, that these other gods are false, after a gentle reminder, he gives them a more strong reminder with the head and the hands being broken off. They still don't get the message. What God is looking for is for them to turn to trust and to believe in him and to not worship all sorts of gods, but to recognize there is only one God who created the universe, and this God is represented by this Ark of the Covenant. Now, notice that the head and the hands are on the threshold. Now, there's some cultural significance here that we may not be familiar with. In the ancient Near East, thresholds and also doorposts, they were very significant. They were like the the cross point. In, in many of these false religions and these polytheistic cultures, the thresholds represented the place where you moved from a, a place of, of commonness to a place of holiness. So this threshold was a significant place, and that's where the head and the hands are land. And instead of recognizing the power of Israel's God, they continue to look to Dagon for power. And so they develop this superstition. Look again at verse 5. It says, That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So this was a significant event in the history of these Philistines that from this point forward, we're not stepping on thresholds. Why? Because we respect and honor Ashdod, and we shouldn't put this other god in here near him, this ark that represents this other god, the covenant-keeping god of Israel. And so we're never going to step on the threshold as a way to show honor so that we get whatever goodies we might get in life, which often tended to be crops and children. That's what the people wanted in the ancient societies. And so we're never going to step on this threshold so that Dagon won't be so angry with us. So a couple things I've skipped over here. Number one, from verses one and two, the Philistines are doctrinal and functional polytheists. In other words, they believe in many gods, and they're functioning and operating as though there are many gods. They are also superstitious, and that's what comes out in verse 5, where they're never going to step on a threshold uh, uh, again. Have you, have you heard this little uh, expression, uh, step on the crack, break your mama's back? Yeah. It's amazing the kinds of superstitions that we have, even if they're just childhood games and jumping on a sidewalk, or whether there's something very significant, like this was something to them that was very significant. We're never going to step on this threshold again. This is a superstition. A superstition is a belief or practice resulting from ignorance, fear of the unknown, trust in magic 
or chance. Here it's trust in Dagon, the false god, and we're going to get Dagon to do what we want him to do by not stepping on the threshold. They've introduced this new, this new superstitious tradition that actually stayed with them for many, many centuries, about half a millennium. We'll look at that a little bit later. Superstition, a false conception of causation. Now, we are not immune as believers in Jesus in 2022 to superstition, and we're going to come and hit that again in a, in a moment. But at this point, what we're seeing is superstition among the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And so polytheists, like the Philistines, they worship all sorts of gods, not one god. They manipulate their so-called gods through various superstitions, various beliefs, various practices, like not stepping over the threshold. So as I was praying over and reading today's text, a theologian who wrote a song came to my mind. Have you guys heard of Stevie Wonder and his song, Superstition? It actually has a true and good message. And we're not going to have any dancing, but uh, would you guys like to hear a little bit of this song? Say, say yes. So, so we're going to take a look at a couple of the lyrics, which I had never really looked at before. Heard the song many times. Go ahead and, and roll this uh, Stevie Wonder song, Jake. You actually can dance if you want to. Very superstitious. my first time to play a Stevie Wonder song in uh, worship service and my first time to exegete. But his, yeah, his conclusion here, what's on the screen, is you actually suffer when you fall into superstition. They're false. They're not real. Whether we're talking about polytheistic Philistines, whether we're talking about the ancient Israelites, whether we're talking about you and me, we are prone to various kinds of superstitions. Now, some of them we, we might laugh at. Um, ladders, walking behind a ladder or a ladder falling, or the number 13, a 13-month-old baby, or broken mirror, looking in a mirror that's broken gives you seven years of, of bad luck, and then all the good things are in your past and all you have is misery in front of you. These are superstitions that deny the sovereignty and the power of God. And one of the takeaways from today's passage is for you and for me to open our eyes, perhaps, 
to superstitions that we might have going on inside of us, they're, they're probably not so simplistic and outrageous and prehistoric to have a temple and a little idol and Dagon. We don't do that sort of thing, but we have other sorts of superstitions. And we'll talk about those in, in just a moment. But sticking with today's text and how this new superstition for these, this polytheistic society began to not step on the threshold, take a look with me at Zephaniah chapter 1. This is written about 500 years later, meaning this practice of not stepping on the threshold is still going on 500 years later. And, and the Lord says this through the prophet Zephaniah, I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, another polytheistic a people, one of the idols or gods they worship was Baal. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold. Superstition is not okay with God. This is what he's saying 500 years later. Don't follow this superstitious practice. Uh, those who fill the temple of their gods with violence. And deceit. Okay, so all of that uh, was directed toward the Israelites' neighbors, the Philistines, who have set up the Ark of the Covenant um, in their temple for Dagon and are very slow to learn how bad of an idea that was. Um, But let's continue to track what what happens um, after that. So we've looked at verses 3 through 5. Well, actually, before we do that, before we move on to verse 6, I want to go back and look at chapter 4 and verse 3 really briefly. Let me just read it to you. If you don't have your Bibles open, just listen. Or if your Bibles are open, you can look back to chapter 4 and verse 3. It says there, When the soldiers returned to camp from this other battle, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So I want to suggest, as we look back at chapter 4 and verse 3 in this episode, what we have going on here is a superstitious reality about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be in Shiloh. It is supposed to be part of the, the, the centerpiece of worship. It is not designed to go with them. And the reason that they have lost their battle, the reason that the judgment of God has come upon them is because of unbelief and because of turning away from God, because of blasphemy going on at the temple sacrifices or at the tabernacle sacrifices. And the wrong thinking they have is if we bring this box, the Ark of the Covenant, with us, then we will have victory and we will be saved. So, this idea of superstition, a false concept of causation or of magic or of power that's going to come out of this box is what the Israelites, what God's people were thinking back in chapter 4. Again, this is the kind of thinking that we can fall prey to as well. One believer uh, was sharing about his own superstitious tendency. His name's Scott Red. He writes uh, this. He says, I remember... The talisman-like power, talisman's a word meaning like I I put power in this box or in this event or this thing. I remember this talisman-like power I placed on the amount of time I spent reading the scriptures uh, when he was in college. If I missed a morning session of Bible reading, I felt like anything bad that happened that day 
was caused by missing my ritual. I was less concerned with sincerity and reverence toward God than with checking off that box to ensure a good day for myself. This is a man being transparent, confessing how he had a superstitious idea about his time in the Word, his time in prayer. Should we spend time in the Word? Of course. Should we spend time in prayer? Of course. Do we do these things so that our day goes well that day, and if our day doesn't go well, when we happen to skip, that, that there's a causal relationship? No, that is a superstitious kind of way of thinking where instead of God using us, we are using him. This is what was happening in chapter 4 with the Israelites. This is what is happening in chapter 5 with the Philistines, and it is something that you and I are prone to as well. Superstitious thinking. And it just ain't the way. If you don't listen to me, listen to Stevie Wonder. I mean, he says it better than I do, actually. So, point number three of four today. Uh, God's people, that is you and I, the ancient Israelites, the Christian in 2022, we sometimes function as polytheists through superstition. So, if we go back to this guy, if you uh, asked Scott Redd, whether he believed in only one God, the one true God, the creator and sustainer of the universe who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, I'm sure he would have said yes. But functionally, he's believing in another God, the God of himself, essentially. The God of himself who has set up this structure that if I do this, then God's going to give me this. So maybe the God is his structure, maybe the God is himself, but he is functioning in this way, in the same way the Israelites were treating the Ark of the Covenant, the same way the Philistines are treating the Ark of the Covenant, that I'm going to get something from God and use him. So again, number three, God's people, we sometimes function as polytheists. We, even though we cognitively or doctrinally say we believe in one God, we are acknowledging by our behavior that there are other powers or magic or whatever, and we're going to get uh, causation, we're going to get blessing, we're going to make something happen through this superstitious practice. All right, so now let's come back uh, to our text in verse 6 and see what happens with this ark and what the Philistines are going to do after he has sent this message. So verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Verse 7, when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel. They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath, which is another Philistine city. So this makes the reader wonder, you know, what's going on here? (laughs) That they're wanting to send the ark to Gath? It's causing massive problems here. Let's send it over here. I mean, I'm just guessing they maybe don't have the greatest relationships with Gath. Or maybe they think that the, the God of Israel the Ark of the Covenant is teamed up with the wrong God, and we need to get it 
this is maybe more likely, get it into the right temple right next to one of the other gods where there would be a compatibility among these gods and then we can get what we want from the God of Israel. That's probably more along what they're thinking. We don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what their thinking is, but their, their conclusion is let's move it to Gath. So they move the ark of the God of Israel uh, to Gath, which is just one of these other five cities um, Again, I forgot my little, but you can see probably the ones, the cities that are in the really bold letters there, those are the five main cities in the Philistine territory, and so they're moving it over to Gath. So they're not getting what God is after. He is after them to acknowledge him as sovereign, as Lord, and to not be polytheists, but to worship only one God. And he has done this by inflicting uh, tumors, and devastation upon them. And let me just say something about that, because that devastation is about to increase. And if you're here today, maybe you're a skeptic of the Bible, maybe you're not sure, like did something like this really happen? Is this how God operates, that he sends tumors and destruction, and as we're going to see in a moment, even death upon people who reject him and deny him and worship other gods? And I want to say two things if that might be how you're thinking. First of all, yes, this did actually happen. He does actually do that. He is actually a God of judgment. But very often, in fact, most often, the judgment of God is not carried out by tumors or by killing people or something like that. We do see that throughout biblical history, throughout history. But most often, what we see is what we read about in Romans uh, chapter 1. And it's repeated three times there in in Romans chapter 1, where it says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So when people reject God, and they go and serve themselves, or they go and serve some other God, or some false gods, most often, what he does is he lets them go. He gives them over. Judgment is still going to come, but it's going to happen in eternity. So sometimes he he does judgment immediately when he has a purpose and a sovereign reason for that. And so we have tumors and we have destruction, but often he gives people over. And this is what I experience and what I've seen most in life is God giving people over. So just many examples of this, but just to give you one example, the person who wouldn't identify their God as wealth or money, but the person who has made money or wealth their God. God often just gives them over to that empty pursuit of wealth or money, their false God of power or money or whatever they pursue, and and their lives are going to end up just being, eventually, it's going to end up being no fulfillment and, and joyless, and it's not going to satisfy. The only thing that truly satisfies is being in right relationship with God, both in this life and forever. So generally speaking, God gives people over, but sometimes he judges in this way. So I want to just say to skeptics or critics, this actually happened, and this isn't common for him to respond um, in this way. All right, we're going to come back to the text here and finish up. You guys still tracking with me? All right, so let's come back and and finish up. We're at verse uh, 6, right? Are we at verse 6? So verse 6, thank you. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Uh, Yeah, I already read that. So what are we going to do with this? 
Coming down at the end of verse 7, they answered, Have the ark, move it to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel. Verse 9. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So they just keep moving around these major cities and the places where they are taking this Ark of the Covenant, instead of repenting and professing faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. Israel has missed out on that relationship, most all of them, with a few exceptions, Samuel and a few others. And now the Philistines have missed out on that. And they are pursuing happiness through these false idols and and these false gods. But they just keep moving it down the road. And then finally, as we come to the end of today's passage, last few verses, it says, as the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of God of Israel around to kill us and our people. Verse 11, so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Send it away. Let it go back to its own place where it will kill us and our people. And here's where that more severe thing has happened. For death had filled the city with panic. Death. This is strong judgment of God. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So they finally realized, let's get this thing out of our territory, this Ark of the Covenant. But they didn't respond the way that God wants people then and now to respond, which is in humility and repentance and to acknowledge the creator and sustainer of the universe as our one and only true God. The Israelites have missed that, and they tried to use the Ark in a superstitious way. The Philistines have missed that. And this is one of the primary messages from this text to you and to me today. As we close out today's sermon and this passage, I want to say that the one and only God will not be used by anyone. He won't be used by me. He won't be used by you. In fact, it's the opposite way around. He wants to use us. He doesn't want to use us as as pawns or to to use us in any kind of unhealthy way. He wants to use us to maximize our joy as we love him and we love our neighbors. That is what he has called us to do. And we must be careful to not try to use him to get what we want, whatever scenarios, however sophisticated we may come up with, we want to avoid those superstitious scenarios. Last thing I want to do before we close today, as we read the Old Testament, we want to connect it with the New Testament and with the gospel and with Jesus. And my attempt in doing this today is just to summarize very briefly a parable probably many of you are familiar with. Because what we have in 1 Samuel 5 is really a negative truth against superstition, but I also want to balance that with a New Testament truth, something positive that God would have for us. And so you're familiar with the parable of the talents. If you're not, one of them, one of these people in the parable, a parable is a short story that's made up to teach a spiritual truth. So it's a, a made-up story to teach something true spiritually. And so one of the uh, individuals in the parable of the talents is, is given one talent, one is given, um, one is given two talents, and one is given five talents. And the one who's given one, he just buries that thing and, and doesn't do anything with it. And then the other two, one's given two, one's given five, they put those talents to work. Now, in this parable, the talents represent the stewardship of 
everything that God has given to me, the stewardship of everything God has given to you. What has he given to you? He's given you life today. He's, he, he's given you the Bible. He's given you the gospel. He's given you some sort of resources. He's given you spiritual gifts. Everything that he has entrusted to you is represented by that word talents. And what we find in those two, uh, the people who are given two and the people who are given five, is they put those talents to work. And what does God say to them? He says, the master in the story is, is uh, representing Jesus. And so he replies, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I went to this parable because if we just read uh, 1 Samuel 5 and get this truth, this, anti, uh, th- th- this truth, like anti-superstitious thing, you can go away just feeling scolded and just feel like, yeah, we learned what, what not to do, but we also want to hear from God what we are to do, and he is looking for us to be faithful in our lives. He is looking for you to be faithful. He was looking to the Israelites not to take the ark into battle, but to repent of the blasphemy and what they were doing and to keep the ark in Shiloh and to worship him according to his word, the way he had set up. But they ignored all that and did what they wanted to do. They were not good stewards with the talents that God has given them. When we are good stewards of what God has given us, our time, our talents, our spiritual gifts, our resources, he wants us to share in his happiness and experience blessing. Part of this is avoiding superstitious tendencies that you and I may have to get what we want, to surrender our souls to the Lord, and to be faithful stewards of all that he has given us. Let's bow our heads now and ask him to help us to be faithful stewards of all that he has given to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity about what you expect from us. Lord, we know that you expect exclusive devotion, that there is no other God beside you, next to you, or under you. Lord, unlike the ancient peoples, we aren't, most of us here are not tempted to worship some other God like Dagon, some other so-called God like Dagon or Baal or Allah or whomever. That's not our temptation. Our temptation is often to elevate material things or ideas, uh, values like wealth or power or personal comfort, and to elevate those things so that they functionally are like gods or idols in our lives. Lord, some of us are superstitious about those kinds of things. Some of us are even superstitious about our own time with you. So help us to turn from superstition, to submit ourselves to your will, and to be good stewards of whatever you have given us and to use them for your glory. Whatever you've given us, time, talent, treasure, spiritual gifts, even the breath that we have today, may we use it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.